Hello, Jimmy. Hey, Angela. This is Books, Books are, are Good, good. Actually. actually. And it is 2022. And if you thought that we were going to have a different intro, I'm glad that we don't. So, <laughs> for the month of December, uh, we read Hammer and Ho by Robin D.G. Kelly. Sorry, listeners. But yes, we did. Um, and it was really interesting. Um, both, uh, like, really, like, engaging as far as, like, story goes. I mean, story. Like, this is real life. But also, like, pretty confusing at times. And also pretty dense at times. Yeah. Um, you know what? Since you started with your thoughts, why don't you just keep going for it and I'll uh, go out. Going for it. Okay. Um, the structure of the book is uh, basically the... Is it late teens or does it pick up in the early 20s? Um, kind of late. It does like a very late 18s and then kind of right. yada, yada, yada yeah. to, to yeah. yeah 1900s. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's basically a uh, overview of uh, late 1800s, like post reconstruction into the 1940s during and post World War II. Uh, looking at the organizing efforts of communists in uh, specifically one state, Alabama. Um, and it's, uh, it's really interesting to see all of the parallels to modern day, um, how uh, police, police tactics and oppression really have not changed the lynch mob has just gotten a badge like this is something that we know but like to see it like so hyper focused on like one state one city specific cases just over decades and see how the response slowly evolves but still is like not enough to stop it um, was very interesting. Also, like, looking at the the ways in which state relief efforts during, like, the Great Depression and um, during both wars um, and the New Deal, um, like, were extremely inadequate for Black Americans. Um, it there there are so many acronyms so there are many. too many acronyms um there are so many names uh and they move around uh and then they uh sometimes get married and they sometimes die um you could probably make a really good like fiction book off of this yeah, sort of like, there, was, uh, there was some plays yeah. at the end that were mentioned yeah. that were kind of based off of, I think, Hosea Hudson and mm -hmm. some other folks. But like, um, who did the the um, Russian Revolution book that we read? Oh, October um, Revolution? Yeah. 
um, like in that style of like, this is a, a slight fictionalization of the real life events in like a really like condensed, strong narrative. Um, could probably do like series, um, like maybe per decade or maybe per era, depending on how you chopped it up. Not to say that like the only thing to gain from this book is like, this could be good fiction because there's an interesting story here. Um, because there's a, a lot to gain from this book as far as like the benefits of organizational tactics, um, how um, inter-party struggles can like hinder a movement or help a movement um, and how much of a bastard the Red Cross is and the state is. Um, I kind of wish I took this as a college course. Yeah, for sure. Um, anything else from my thoughts? Um, I will have no more thoughts all episode. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> empty brain, only book. Brain. New uh, year, new brain. New year, new brain. Um, so for me, I think this book was very good in terms of uh, explaining the cultural and the time of you know Birmingham and the surrounding areas it also um really put together I probably will reread this book like later on but really kind of linked each like organization and who was doing what and kind of the context of like the various different strikes how do they organize these strikes like what were what were the goals of these strikes and kind of the reaction of the state other folks other organizations that probably didn't really um, really agree with these strikes and kind of how they reacted to to either the outcome of them or the you know uh, like the resolution and uh, this book also yeah does have a lot of parallels to like current times which is very fucking frustrating because it's a lot of the same shit over and over and over again we're like slightly better, but there's still a lot of problems with uh, classism and racism in left movements and mm -hmm. sexism and other isms. Mm -hmm. um, this also for me kind of put to context of like um, black communists because like in school, that really wasn't even with like Martin Luther King Jr., who definitely had a who, who like his father was part like, was kind of in the sink and some other some of those other organizations and like obviously during that time a lot of black folks did were either communist or maybe not you know card carrying but they definitely mingled with other folks of that you know who are communists so like mm -hmm. that now makes sense why you see like any um like protests from you know white folks who have like you know, integration is communism and all this other bullshit, it makes more sense now. Because people, I, I remember, yeah. like, seeing those, I'm like, what the yeah. fuck does that mean? And they're like, oh, yeah. okay, because during this time, there was a, you know, communist party, there was organizations, there was this threat to those folks who thought that, oh, shit, they're getting their stuff from, you know, their orders from USSR, when really, like, mm -hmm. they weren't 
ever they they we there was a very american communist um Mm -hmm. distinction um Mm -hmm. i kind of wish they went uh in this granted that was not the focus of the book but i kind of am curious about how did you know the school of um shit i forgot there was that new york school of education that you know folks got sent to i'm kind of curious like how did that like but obviously they read marx lenin stalin and stuff like that but i'm Mm -hmm. curious how did folks kind of um tool that more towards america like how did they make Mm -hmm. it more for americans right Um, america's material conditions right um Uh, yeah and that that also would just be an interesting book like not just like how how did they like organize the um literature for america but like when did it start who came out of that what did they go on to do like yeah right um another aspect of this book was it was like this book is kind of bittersweet because we now know kind of what happened right the communist party doesn't really fucking exist there is no the 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 anti-communist propaganda one right like that that's that's it but it kind of shows a path forward to get people who are um i really hate saying like they're not educated because that just sounds really shitty um unaware unaware yeah i'll say unaware enough to kind of be like hey so like your current conditions right yeah your material conditions right now they could be better. Here's how we can do that for you. And generally, that will get people on your side, right? Mm-hmm. As long as you, like, keep moving forward to that and organize. And, like, the fact that people who were illiterate or who could not read or write were able to teach other folks how to do that, you know, how to, how to like, think about those types of things is, like, really amazing um and granted that's some of that's born from you know um enslaved folks doing the same with um you know bible and like christianity and stuff like that so like there is a precedent for that but um you know that was cool to see you know cool to read about uh what this book also did is enforce my kind of hatred of the naacp um some you know, folks probably be like, well, you know, they're different from now, but like, I just don't see that, unfortunately. Um, yeah. You know, I don't read up, I didn't really read up on like their history of stuff, but it's kind of obvious that they kind of have been doing the same thing for however many decades that they've been a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's that almost makes me want to jump into number four four right now yeah sure in our questions um so um do you want to discuss the difference between the ild and the naacp yeah so what really i think difference differentiates them um the ild uh i forgot their fucking acronym in this book time to google time to look it up uh, the International Labor Defense. So um, this is also kind of uh, dovetails with our other book about, um, oh my God, the Black Panther Party. Um, wow. I like literally... Fred Hampton? Hampton? Yes. Um, in which 
The ILD is um, a way for folks who've been who, actually for it's a way for people to get a legal representation, especially with uh, like pr police brutality. Um, because unfortunately, the NAACP really didn't focus on that like at all um, until the Scottsboro case, the Scottsboro Five, in which five black men were accused of um, raping and killing a like two people mm -hmm. and um, without evidence yeah without evidence the woman who survived kind of like said something like she kind of recanted and then said it was this guy and all this other bullshit you know the usual like tactics yeah. uh that and happened everyone had like alibis that multiple people could verify that were ignored yeah. right and the NAACP, like, I think uh, a lot of the families of these, uh, the accused try to go to NAACP, and they're kind of like, no, nah, we'll not do this. And yep. um, ILD was like, no, nah, we're going to, we'll take this cause. So um, they, like, raised money uh, to, like, support the families. Because, you know, uh, during this time, men usually were the people who, men, like, made quote-unquote more money even though women did there was a lot of domestic labor uh but they're paid mm -hmm. like they're generally unpaid or very paid very little like and if at all women also engaged in a lot of beyond like what most people would like view as domestic labor like you know working in the house making food mending clothes they also did a lot of like like basically like um urban and like rural farming like they they would have like a half acre to like acre like plots of land that they would farm um that provided a lot of the food that uh their families and their community would eat right so on on their own while men were like working in a coal mine or working on some other person's field yeah they did a fuck ton of work that was invisible. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so the ILD came into the defense of Scottsboro Five and LACP after, excuse me, after like kind of like community pressure. Eventually, mm -hmm. actually, what happened? No, no. So NAACP kind of after they saw the ILD was doing something like, okay, we'll do something. So they had like two lawyers, and then eventually. They combined into one. Um, but yeah, so kind of the main difference really is that the NAACP wants to, they do want to advance the, um, you know, uh, equality for black people. However, they want to, like, not piss off other white people or white liberals. Yeah. That is their, um, sorry, go on. Because um, a lot of the members of the NAACP, at least the way that the book presents it, were m middle class black people, uh, more often black people who had property or higher paying jobs, who had some standing, uh, at least in the eyes of the white community, potentially. Um, and yeah, so they didn't want to jeopardize that. Right. So... You know, they had, like, NAACP parents put themselves as 
kind of uh, like the book mentions this, but kind of like the Booker T. Washington type of like, okay, we'll, you know, we'll capitulate to white, um, like white, like a uh, uh, fear of like black people, but we'll like kind of do it over somewhere else where, you know, we'll be respectful. We'll have our own businesses. We'll, you know, make sure people like read and write and stuff like that. And they also really did not like rural blacks at all. Like mm-hmm. it, there was a disdain, like there was like, Oh, I'm above you. And you'll probably eventually get there. But like, you, you just got to be over, not near me at all. Um, yeah. It, it's very similar to just how like the, the urban rural divide is now politically. Yeah, for sure. Um, Cause I, I've been like trying to push back in my head and just like with other people when they're like, Oh, eh, when we go to the rural era, it's all MAGA country. And I'm like, no, there's mm-hmm. like other people who do live mm-hmm. out there and yeah. they all don't normally like there's, as anything with humans, it's fucking complex. Like, yes. don't, like, uh, whenever people are like, oh, the South, I wish we could just burn it all. I was like, no, you don't understand. There's, like, a lot of black people still, like, who are there. Mm-hmm. There's a, It's a pretty diverse area, like, a mm-hmm. lot of other parts of the United States. Like, mm-hmm. fucking go visit or read a fucking book. It's, yeah, yeah there's, like... Sometimes with leftism and there's like this elite, like the, the elitism and the East Coast yeah. elitism, it does fucking come out and you have to kind of call it out. Otherwise, you just... We're not going to get anywhere. We're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, unfortunately, with the ILD, it disbanded by the end of World War II um, and NAACP stick, stuck around. So, um, mm-hmm. And the thing with the NAACP, too, is that a lot of black folks kind of went back, black communists and other, like, more left-leaning, like, even further from liberal, kind of went into the NAACP um, as an organization, um, as kind of, like, a lot of these other organizations kind of, like, crumbled after a point. Um, The anti-communist propaganda, like, really ramped up, especially after, um, you know, uh, World War II, and obviously, like, there was so much repression during the 1930s and 1940s that it made more sense to just kind of fade into the crowd of liberals than try mm-hmm. to and probably and hopefully influence these other organizations instead of trying to be a proud card-carrying communist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and there's there's a lot of discussion about that in the book um and a lot of uh, I cannot remember the name of the one individual, but um, I think it was like chapter six or seven that was talking about him for a bit where he he like came down from New York and he he wanted to be like an out and proud like communist and member of the Communist Party in, in Birmingham. And they were like, no, you need to work with the liberals like influence them be be quiet about being a communist and just try and and pressure them into engaging with us positively yeah um it's uh, yeah it's just all so fucking grim um the other thing Mm -hmm. that the ild did was i believe they helped with a bunch of um uh, labor 
labor practices and unions mm-hmm. trying to just read real quickly I, I don't want to just focus on like this one case but like the the scottsboro case kind of was like a really big catalyst for them like it was a very big deal um yeah. and um unfortunately i think the uh you know oh right also ild was like a branch of an organization so they really try to have roots in like alabama and it that took fucking forever because like as we mentioned they try to run out people as much as they fucking could you know drive them to the outskirts beat the fuck out of them and leave them there so like there was just insurmountable pressure and a Mm -hmm. huge mountain to fucking climb to like get these types of organizations established both locally and also nationally it's because like there was a an the, the Little Red Scare in the 20s. Um, and then a lot of like pressure regarding the, um, when the uh, Nazi Soviet pact was signed and the USSR invaded Finland, um, there was a, a lot of pressure on communist organizations at that time to like functionally shut the fuck up yeah um yeah yeah like um, uh speak you know what never mind we have a question yeah. for that we are gonna discuss that later okay um do we want to go back to the background on the new deal and how that affected sharecroppers yeah so okay. i think kind of what um like my my knowledge of new deal was very like it was all hunky dory new deal passed yeah everyone got what they wanted it helped Mm -hmm. people and when we went to the war and then we got super out of the our depression and their thing was good um Mm -hmm. you know so yeah uh, no that's that's basically how it's how it is presented like the new deal is not like really understood as like one a series of like programs like dozens of programs that started at different times and were for different parts of the u.s and impacted different parts of the u.s if they were national um but then also like in u.s uh history education there's no engagement with the differences between like how the New Deal was implemented for white America versus non-white America. Yeah, and that was the, this is kind of like the point of the book was like, yeah, New Deal got enacted, but like there was still no one, um, the cotton, uh, the price of cotton didn't, like it got uh, priced at a certain price and then they kind of just undercut the workers super hard Mm -hmm. or just, were like go fuck yourself you're evicted and... yeah, it was it was functionally like in, in without like the obvious ownership it was functionally slavery again yes for sure um one thing that stood out to me regarding pre-new deal um uh, like poverty assistance um was like 19 19- 30s 1931 um the red cross was stepping in to help white uh rural white and black workers 
because like FDR wasn't in office yet. We were still under Hoover. Um, and so there was no New Deal at the time. Um, but it, I, at one point, it stated that uh, often the Red Cross overseers that were ensuring that these uh, workers were working to get the extremely meager uh, allotment of aid that they were getting would work them for 10 to 12 hours standing over them with a shotgun. Like, that's not aid. Right. Um, also, they, there was, like, um, postings for, like, job, um, like, placement, essentially, mm -hmm. like, help with, like, education there. And, of course, they didn't allow black people to uh, fucking take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of people were kind of disillusioned because they had this new deal shit go. And then, oh, cool. hey, I, I cannot do, be a part of any of these programs I can't work on the same, you know, these farms. I'm still a tenant farm. Like it, it, it helps all the these independent farmers, while these sharecroppers and tenant farmers, they were essentially fucked out of the entire deal. This was also mm -hmm. the same for poor white folks too, who but were living not at the volume. Yeah, not uh, the volume, but um, yeah. um, also for um, women working in the workforce as a part of New Deal, um in particular, black women working in the like New Deal programs. Um, when like the labor market started to heat up a bit and there was more of a desire for like domestic workers in the household, like paid even worse than the like assistance wages they were getting as part of these New Deal projects, like black women were just kicked off of the, the roles and essentially like forced to go back to doing domestic labor in white homes um, at a worse pay and longer hours. And uh, of course, somehow less dignity. Yeah. So um, we, we should definitely for an, a future book kind of find one about the new deal, the new deal and how it affected, you know, uh, different parts of the U.S., different mm -hmm. demographics and things like that. I think that would be very mm -hmm. interesting um, because, like, the New Deal is generally touted as, like, the best legislature that came out. Like, that's like, kind of like a liberal cornerstone, mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of mm -hmm. folks. Um, and I think, unfortunately, like, that's another, I think that's a kind of an in if you really want to try to, like push someone a bit further to the left to be like so you know go through the arguments like well you know the new deal didn't really like get every you know didn't do what it technically did but it, it helped us get out of poverty or whatever but you know yeah, yeah there's there's be obviously like, okay. fucking holes here yeah there's holes here here are the conditions of working under these programs um here are the conditions of working under these programs if you are not a white male um and uh, these are um, how long they existed for. And then once they were gone, you were you were back to being fucked uh, yeah. by the market. Um, yeah, no, that would be really interesting. Like a, a uh, intersectional Marxist like review and analysis of the New Deal. Yeah. Let's see if we can find something like that. But that's for later. 
for sure. That's for later. <laughs> maybe, maybe May. Maybe May, yeah. Yeah. Um. So, how some black folks became communists versus being in the labor movement. Discuss. <laughs> um. So I kind of this was like my discussion question. Um. <laughs> or the question I posed, because, like, kind of in the book, there was a lot of kind of friction between the point of some of these, or, like, the mission statement for some of these organizations, right? Mm -hmm. Some really focused on better wages, better hours, better conditions. And then some folks were like, okay, so we can take that a bit further and do, you know, equality between blacks and whites, uh, black determinism, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of it still was steeped in, you know, uh, racist ra ideology and language. Yeah. Yeah. And also sexism. A lot of it was like, yes. yeah, equality between black and white men. Men. Then, yes. yeah. Cisgendered men. Which yeah. Isn't even necessarily acknowledged in, in the like arguments at the time. But yes. Um, yeah, like, I, it's really frustrating to me reading over those sections, because it's like, having having experienced the past 40 to 50 years, uh, well, I mean, I'm not 40 to 50, but having an understanding of the past 40 to 50 years of America's march rightward, um, you need a ratcheting system. You, you cannot just have what you cannot just have a labor movement agitating for just immediate material conditions and you cannot have just a more uh ideology driven movement where you're arguing for the immediate um like issuing of of rights and equal standing you need both um because the push further to the left by one makes to everyone else the less further to the left more reasonable. And then everyone gets acclimated to that. And then you ratchet again. And I don't know why, like, I mean, I understand from, like, the perspective of, like, at the time, these organizers did not have the past hundred or so years of history, including their own existence, uh, to look back on and be like, why not both? But uh, I wish they had. Yeah, I think, you know, also part of this is the, like, one, the police brutality, two, yes. the uh, anti-communist propaganda, yeah. three, um, you got a bunch of white communists coming down who are kind of fucking infantilizing and telling you, hey, yeah. you dumb person, you should follow my thing. Yeah, and you don't, a lot you don't of need more money. You don't need better working conditions. You need full equality now. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, but like equality doesn't feed me or clothe my family. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, I think what helped was that some of these like more co like the communist party and some of these like kind of offshoot type of, you know, uh, organizations, they did help with like 
when folks went on strike, they helped with like cooking and mm -hmm. getting funds. And, you know, some of these folks from the NAACP and these middle class like black folks did help fund some of these things. And I think that kind of helped bring people over. But like they still it's still like, you know, um, throughout the book, you say like, oh, someone some people paid their dues, some people, you know, but like they had they had like a really big drive and they only got 50 people, you know, like these really kind of very flaccid type of like response to you know, these, these types of efforts. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, yeah. you know, you got, you just have a lot of, a lot of shit just going against you. And also like some of these black communists too kind of had the opportunity to like travel, to go to some of these different schools. Mm -hmm. Um, by some, I mean, Including the one in the Lenin, a Lenin school in Moscow as well. Yeah. Yeah. I believe so. So like there was, that like there was like that opportunity but like for a lot of other folks who are kind of just like i just need to make sure to get paid period like my dollar or whatever mm -hmm. you know that's just kind of like that's just uh just that was their their driving focus yeah yeah and that that makes sense um like as much as uh, a fully communist society right here right now just flip the switch cool um it's not gonna happen uh and the the only way to that is through making changes to society that we live in currently right um and like it it sort of speaks to um some of the, I mean, beyond just being infantilizing and paternalizing and and kind of racist and not kind of racist, racist, um, like the fact that a lot of these communist organizers, I mean, not all of the communist organizers were coming down from New York, like some of them born and bred right there. Right, um, that's true. But the fact that like they didn't have more of a i mean this is also to be fair like they're engaging with marxist literature like as it's being developed instead of having like another hundred years or so of analysis and review and interpretation and distillation and etc cetera, etc cetera. um but the fact that they they had that break with uh labor organizations like speaks to their lack of understanding of having to create communism under the material conditions in which you currently exist right like you you cannot just like take the prescriptions of one place and map them onto another like one to one like you have to like meet the people where they are at and this is this is what Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party were great at because they saw what the material conditions of the people living around them were and rose to meet them. They also did it as uh, through an ideological lens. So it wasn't just like uh, we are we are feeding people. And we are like 
helping to educate people because that's a good thing to do. It's because we have an end goal and this is the way to get there. Yeah. Um, I think I kind of wonder if like uh, some folks, you know, from Black Panther Party, I wonder if they kind of like, because um, like, you know, a lot of folks uh, migrated, you know, from the south to the north and mm -hmm. probably, you know, took those lessons. So like, I'm kind of like curious if around I mean, that, you yeah. know, Chicago and stuff, did they kind yeah. of, you know, take take those lessons from them? I mean, Fred Hampton's family was from uh, the South. I don't know if it was Alabama, um, but I think it might have been. Yeah. Um, and there was... Um, uh, why, why am I blanking on her name right now? I mean, obviously, Martin Luther King Sr. was involved in some of these organizations in the uh, oh, late Angela 30s. Davis? Angela Davis, there we go. Yeah, yeah. her mother was uh, an organizer with the communists at one point. Um, so, like, it, like, these efforts absolutely had impacts and, and resulted in a lot of the focuses and the organizations of the uh 50s and 60s and early 70s but i uh to have a time machine yeah really it's like it's really frustrating because there's definitely a undercurrent of this as part of like black culture and like i feel like it just kind of got beat out of us in a way, mm -hmm. you know, um, man, it sucks. Mm -hmm. Anyway, speaking yeah. of this entire book, um, white communists and relationships with race. And we kind of spoke to this a little bit, but yeah, kind of throughout... just say, as yeah. a white communist, death all white communists <laughs> in Minecraft, in Minecraft. Okay. Um, but yeah, your your thoughts? Yeah, so throughout kind of this book, there is this undercurrent of kind of white chauvinism. And mm. essentially, a lot of folks kind of had, especially in the 30s, they definitely had to put up with it. As in, they'll say, hey, yo, that's messed up. And then everyone's like, yeah, I guess that's messed up. Anyway, like they don't really mm. punish people or call them out or anything like that. Some mm -hmm. organizations were a little bit better, but until um, in the epilogue chapter and actually the chapter before that, uh, once they started, like after World War II, things shifted enough to where folks kind of were like, hey, we did fight a war against racism and I come back to my leftist organization and we're still dealing with racism. What the fuck? And sexism. Mm -hmm. Like, what? what is this shit? So... Um, people kind of were able to speak up more. If folks, act, there was like consequences for this. I think they even started like trying to like like have anti-racism be actually a pillar for their activism, you know, and equality as an act, uh, as a pillar instead of kind of like let's just focus on making sure we have equal wages and folks that can vote. I'm sorry men that can vote and mm -hmm. you know stuff like that um it's still 
like wasn't and probably still isn't like great there's still very much a blind spot for white folks um who are especially leftists to kind of really understand you know black folks and other mm -hmm. persons of color like grievances um mm -hmm. and we yeah we actually uh kind of encountered this a bit today um uh there's there's a gentleman uh called Thomas Solo and unfortunately um there not to say that this is a tendency of, of of all white leftists or all um white people on the left um or all white socialists or communists um not all white communists hashtag um but that uh, thomas so creates the sort of content that can be pointed to and be like well i don't understand black culture but he's saying like this is how black culture is um and not necessarily realizing like the insidiousness of of what is is being portrayed there um and it's a it is it's a serious blind spot for white leftists because you can be suckered by nonsense yeah and you're you're un, unable to if you don't have an understanding of like of like the people that you're organizing with you, you can't address you can't work with them to address their needs and you can't work with them to i mean not saying you can't work with them but like like you're going to be inefficient yeah and you're not going to meet um the organization's needs properly you're not going to meet the needs of the people that the organization has been designed to help properly um and you're just gonna probably come off as like a jerk and uh uh a, like empty headed because you you like it's good to be versed in like communist theory but like you have to like understand and engage with the people that you are organizing with yeah um at least with some of the folks like in these organizations they did step aside for allowing, you know, black leadership to actually flourish. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so they some folks recognize I'm out of my depth because I'm from a different area and I don't really understand the current like the current culture and you know who to really go talk to. And, you know, I met a couple of like steel workers and they really like this one guy who's mm -hmm. pretty much like the de facto leader. So like I'm gonna defer to him to kind of, you know, help you know, talk to the his other steel workers and kind of like suss out who's like suss out kind of the the temperature of a strike or what do or try to help them organize to get what they want, like try to figure out their demands and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I also will <laughs> I'm gonna regret this. Uh, this also kind of relates to BreadTube a bit more. Um, if you've read, sure. you know, watched any FD signifiers, think yes. about. Breaking Bread and um, how, like, 
black YouTubers and like other uh, creators are kind of like sidelined and this has like been an ongoing problem for a while. I guess since BreadTube has been a thing and I'm not going to explain BreadTube because it's fucking, but it's my only thing is like, it's just left YouTube content creators. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean they're communist or socialist because some yeah. just straight up just don't say that. It's just, yeah. yeah. Or some, some are just left liberals or social Democrats. They're yeah. just like, it is literally everything left of Joe Biden functionally could fall under threat too. Yeah. So there's just been a lot of discussion and talk about how race is kind of uh, handled or not handled in that sphere. And it just reminds this book reminds me of like, wow, we're still having the same conversations again about mm -hmm. this white chauvinism, about like, hey, did you guys read all of these white philosophers and not any, you know, like, there's a lot of, um, there's just blind spots that yes. you just need to be aware of. And then yeah. when people are talking and you just need to listen. And unfortunately, I know I almost fell into the trap of like, but Thomas Sobel, he's black. Why don't I listen to him? And it's yeah. like, black people can be wrong too. Yeah. And that's yeah. also like fine and women can be wrong too i i yeah. i've, I've, I've it's, heard it's this argument like people and people can be right and people can be wrong both yeah. about like the world at large and also about their communities yeah um and also this book kind of says like um you know a lot of folks come in with their preconceived conceptions about how people will react to things or like when you teach them about stuff and you kind of need to just not be a dick about it like yeah. holy shit because they came in like oh you know negroes i don't think they're just are are at my uh they literally pull like the rick and morty meme of like you need to be at this level iq to understand rick and morty humor but about communism yeah we need it we like i still see that kind of and it's oh, like yeah. Please stop doing this. Yeah, no, like, I mean, uh, the fact that uh, Vietnamese farmers who had never had any, uh, like, formal school education and Cuban farmers who had never had any school education could, and Chinese farmers who had never had any school education could grok communist theory means you do not need to be like quote unquote like officially educated to have a good understanding of communist theory but it, not to say that there isn't like a need to engage in theory to understand communist theory but like you don't have to go to like that that new york school or the lenin school to be a communist you don't even have to have necessarily graduated high school to be a communist. Like, you don't have to understand, like, um, the uh, market fetishism or, or, or uh, commodity fetishism or um, understand, like, the, the implications of the tendency of profit to fall and, and where they come from or... Uh, like you don't have to understand these things to understand your material conditions and be able to organize to make them better. Yeah. Um, so 
knock it off yeah yes (laughs) um uh something else i do want to uh touch on while because like this sparked the thought in me you remember last summer when um the george floyd protests were going on and um at, at one protest there was like a small group of people parading around in like body armor with um guns and like like uh, functionally larping as members of the black panther party yes i totally do remember that yeah and they like turned out to be actors yep um but like the fact that like as much as like listen to people and like engage with them and like take people at at what they're saying um like also like we can't just jump onto like i saw this one person at a protest and and they looked legit so like i'm going to just like follow them because there are actors there are state actors there there are there are people who potentially are going to try and join movements for like non legitimate reasons and so a part of engaging with and like coming to understand a movement and a culture and people in general is like not fetishizing the the image of them or or them in like a particular like moment but like actually engaging with what they say, what they do, and who they are. Yeah, because... you can also figure out mm-hmm. the the fakers from legit people if you actually mm-hmm. have a conversation with them. Yes, yes, that that's that's the key thing. Because like, if if they didn't have, if they hadn't had like obvious like stock photographs, not stock photographs, but like headshots on like acting websites and like had scrubbed their internet presence beforehand um twitter and instagram absolutely could have like taken these individuals as like a real organization and they could have potentially used that um so like in-person conversations and are are the way forward Delete, sure. delete your Twitter, delete your Instagram, delete your Facebook. <laughs> I'm never deleting my Instagram. Twitter okay. kind of debated that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, so we've solved the problem of white communists and their chauvinist and paternalistic tendencies forever. Yep. Um, but what about labor movements and women? Like, I know we've already talked about how awful um, the organizations could be to women, but could they also be good to women? Um, so in this book, kind of, ki- kind of. So I, in the kind of the epilogue, um, well, one, sorry, I'll go back to 
the like second or third chapter. So what was great and what I think was really funny was the fact that a lot of folks thought really hot women that were in the Communist Party was a lure for men to get yeah. into the Communist Party. Yeah. So obviously, ladies and other folks, we gotta we gotta be more sexy to to lure in people into our side of the aisle or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, Freud would um, not to say that Freud was right about everything or even anything, but Freud would probably have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but anyway, for a lot of these labor movements, the, uh, women were not really included, like, at all. Mm. Um, a lot of husbands did not invite their wives to them. They're kind of very excluded. Um, however, that doesn't mean they weren't doing strikes and mm -hmm. other things like that. They were still, even though they weren't part of the organization, they still would try to strike and organize, um... And they even did, uh, if they found out their husband was a scab, they would uh, withhold sex. So there'd be yeah. like sex strikes. Um, I think we kind of read that in, I feel like in the history of the United States, but maybe I've heard it from other labor podcasts. Um, yeah, may have been in other podcasts. Yeah, so um, like um, women were kind of like especially black women are kind of the invisible like strikers at the mm -hmm. like in the in the 30s uh, or especially in, in this time period of the book and then post-world war ii or like kind of world war ii post-world war ii they gotten more involved with um doing uh leadership and secretary type work a clerical work um Unfortunately, the um, labor, not the labor, um, the like, there was like these job programs and a lot of the women, uh, black women were all part of the domestic worker or um, or other menial labor type stuff. And then all the white women usually went to the clerical type work. Mm -hmm. So there's something, that. Something that I was not clear to me reading this book and just in general like so the the view that like the word secretary secretary um arises in me is like someone doing clerical work like typing for somebody else keeping a track of their meeting notes um keeping track of their mail etc cetera, etc cetera. but then like like labor organization party secretaries like sometimes like those are positions of like power in the organization and i don't i don't have like a good understanding of like what organizations are drawing the line where and like what work uh, a party secretary or an organization secretary might engage with because generally like for for like organizations political organizations you don't have like like a, a chairperson or multiple chairpersons and like a treasurer and then like a party secretary and uh it's i don't have a good idea of like how being a party secretary or organization secretary like what that afforded them within the party and like what they were able to do within the party because of that. Right. 
Um, yeah, that kind of wasn't, uh, also kind of described well, was not described well. I think it kind of, like, based on context, it sounded like they did a lot of, like, organization maybe within the organization, but I'm not mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. So not doing necessarily, like, strike outreach or, but, like, doing, like, like, organi organizing within the, the members. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Each probably organization that was covered in this book could have its own fucking book at this point. Yeah, probably. Yeah. No, definitely. Definitely. Um, something else is going back to the, the, the sex strikes in the 30s. Um, they also, beyond like doing that if their husband was a scab, um, they did a lot of like communal farming like like we mentioned before to ensure that the strikes were successful um they did a lot of like carrying information between um uh, uh labor organizers and the strikers because it was easier for them to pass um be between uh two points be like i'm just bringing lunch um and also some some notes um and they they also would um during the uh, depression would like gang up and prevent like water from being turned off uh at people's houses which is hella based yeah um and would gang up and prevent people from being evicted, which is hella based. Um, so uh, all power to the black women of the South because everything depended on them functionally. Yeah, and it was they were they were not recognized for just how much they did for labor movements at the at the time or even now yeah for sure um another thing is that there were um like feminism and women's movement wasn't really on the radar until mm -hmm. after world war ii so that was kind of an interest like there was like yeah. the black there was like the black question and then the women's question and that wasn't yeah. until later um that was like kind of incorporated because the, the suffragettes had gotten the like the vote for white middle class women in the 20s right yes and then once that was done white middle class women were not content but like as as a movement they were disengaged Right. They couldn't use their judo moves anymore on cops. So mm -hmm. they were like, yeah, we, I guess we're, we'll just judo move each other. Um, yeah. So there was, there was that and kind of like the, the, you know, kind of how can we move towards equality, like kind of wrapping more intersectional of a party than what it was before, which was very focused on men's issues, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, like, because um, I, I, like, 
when the book kind of mentioned women, it didn't like the first, cha- like that one chapter and then kind of like moved on. And I was like, okay, I guess we're never going to mention women ever again. Like they they mentioned like names and I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> what is that? But then like in the epilogue, it kind of like rounded out. I'm like, okay, this, this is good. Cause, um, um, and maybe that was the point maybe to be like, Hey, there is an absence here that doesn't mm-hmm. get addressed for like 10 years, you know, 10 to 15 years later. Yeah. Yeah, with the the women's lib movement. Yeah. Um. Lessons. Lessons. Did we did we learn any lessons? Uh, pain. Um, pain. Uh, an unending cycle of the same in with different faces. Yes. Um. Don't trust the Red Cross. Be suspicious of the NAACP. Um, talk to people. Um, agree, disagree, other lessons? Uh, yeah. Do we want to go into your discussion questions about sub sure. lessons? Sure. Um, was hiding communism from other organizers effective or hindering? Is there use in public recognition or was the situation too dangerous? And that's kind of vague because like this book ranges over a pretty wide period of time where it, I mean, it was always pretty dangerous to be an out and out communist. It seems like based on this book. Yeah. Um, but uh, sort of gets to that, that ratcheting point uh, from earlier like there is there's definitely used to like being like i'm a communist and like the world should be this way and we need to fight to make it that way um and like weighing that with your actual physical safety um what do you think so i think yeah there's the threat of safety and the threat of someone potentially adding you right because that could have that was also a thing um i think it was kind of uh, i would say hiding it was effective because you could potentially push these folks like you got them like one foot in the door Mm -hmm. so you could potentially get them a bit further Mm -hmm. however However, I think part of the problem, too, was that they wanted to be legitimized by, you know, voting in communist folks into things. And that just never really did anything. Like, they never really got far. Like, they got, like, you know, 100 votes in some counties and, like, different places. And, you know, the turnout was, like, pretty good. You know, a, a bit better than usual. But, like, it didn't really help no push the movement forward. No communists were elected to anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I I also feel like both play into, like, conservatives' hands somehow, because, like, if you are out and out, like, card-carrying communists, they're like, hey, everyone, they're a card-carrying communist, like, don't listen to them. Capitalism is the way. They just want race mixing and equal rights for blacks because the USSR 
is telling them what to do and we're American, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but if you're not out and you're in an organization, they can be like, they're not actually like trying to help you. They're just a secret card-carrying communist. Yeah, it's pretty much a damned if you do. Like, they're going to just call you a communist anyway, the matter, yeah. like, based on just, like, what you're saying. So you, it's kind of like, because, like, people who weren't even communists still got the shit beat out of them because someone implied that they are. So, okay. like, you, the sometimes like, the, the game to, like, just don't play the fucking game, which is mm -hmm. horrible, but, yeah. like... You know, you, I guess you have to, like, really, t like, really look at the risks. Yeah. Like, in in the current day, like, uh, there is functionally no risk to being, like, an out and proud communist, for the most part. Like, you might have some, some issues, but you're not likely to be beaten to within an inch of your life or even just outright killed. However... The downside to like, hey, I can be an out and proud communist is um, unlike in the 1920s and the 1930s, um, being an out and proud communist probably isn't going to result in communism happening here in the U.S. Whereas had there been enough communists in the U.S. in the 30s, um, it, it might have happened. Yeah just because of where we were as a country at that time and the power of individuals versus the power of capital at that time. Also, I think you had to hide yourself, especially with an organization, because your organization could also be targeted, like as we saw several times where they would mm -hmm. find the leaders or their families and terrorize them. Yeah. So. Get, get your organization frozen out from banks just because, like, uh, the the banker also happened to be like the the friend of like all these other business people and the friend of the chief of police and so all of a sudden you're ostracized from operating within society. Yeah, yeah, hard to say. Um, what organizational behaviors and resistance patterns would be useful to carry forward into today's labor and rights efforts? Um, I think, uh, one thing that I noticed and we didn't really like sometimes it's touched on is, um, and it's kind of tricky, uh, the youth aspect I think is kind of not very well developed mm -hmm. in a lot of, um, these organizations. Um, yeah. the, I know in Sweden, the only reason why I was a Sweden, holy shit, the only reason why I know about it is because that tragic fucking mass shooting there was that. And there they actually have a organization for youth to talk about socialist um teachings and other things like that um you know we, we just straight up just don't fucking have that there uh here excuse me um so it's very difficult to kind of get that uh to kind of like some like some kids will figure that out on their by themselves and other folks you know other kids are just kind of like i don't fucking give a shit about my political stuff um so i think trying to have a youth organization is good and the other reason why i say it's tricky is because there is a lot of like kind of uh landmines to deal with children because you i want 
them to be able to think for them, like figure out things, but I don't want them to like, you know, I don't know. I guess it's like maybe Just involve the entire family. Yeah. Just like parroting what you're saying. Yeah. Without phone. No. And also like, we've now had like almost a hundred years of like anti-communist like propaganda and efforts in the United States and like trying to like build communist youth movements in in the US it is it's just gonna be hard to overcome a lot of that and also like potentially avoid like raising the ire of their parents. Yeah. Essentially you need to have the entire like their parents to also be like as part of the organization too and be like, hey kids, if you want to be involved, you can do that. There's like a way for you to do that. Um mm -hmm. But, like, that's also very ostracizing, like, as a community, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. um, you know, and, and I'll say this, like, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, Grand Girl Scouts is less, like, Christian-focused, but, like, Boy Scouts is very much a Christian organization um, mm -hmm. that most people are fine with. So, like, we need to essentially have a... Communist Scouts? Communist Scouts, yeah. Oh, and... yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, oh. But I guess you, we could take a step back and maybe have more of a youth um, just like, hey, here are your rights as like a young person. Here are mm -hmm. like things that you should know as you get 18. Here are like things you should be like more awareness of kind of like political structures. And I guess it's like this just have a better history class, but it's just kind of like, you know, you can get involved with movements as it younger person you know you can attend protests you can like write do a bunch of other shit i don't really know this is my problem because I, I never was yeah. part of, like as a kid like yeah fuck whatever it's more like yeah i'm a kid i'm gonna play video games you know yeah. so it's just kind of <laughs> we did also grow up during like a, a period of significant disengagement with politics because quote unquote history was over yeah um and i do feel like the youth of today, the youths, um, the youths are a bit better about like politically engaging. Like, uh, what was it? Two years ago in fuck, twenty nineteen. Three years ago, um, when uh, Greta Thunberg was doing all of the like school walkouts, right, and like students across the world were like doing friday school walkouts and protest against climate change like there and then a lot of the not to say that like older people and by older people i mean like people in their mid to 20s and older didn't come out for the george george floyd protests but a lot of those protests were like young millennials and and zoomers yeah um which is great yeah um yes we we do need communist scouts um yeah i'm into it yeah um, like yeah. sorry yeah. real quick um yeah the reason also like why they're people i don't know why people are so well you did touch on it like there was a d totally disengagement of like politics for people who were 
yeah, mm-hmm. like are like in their thirties and stuff like that. Um, and there's like the surprise of like, oh, why are these young people really into politics? I was like, well, did you fucking look around? Um, yeah. To yeah, there's there's been walkouts. Thank you for mentioning that. Like walkouts from climate change and also walkouts for uh, mass shootings and things like that. You know, mm-hmm. so I think, um, and like it's good that younger folks are politically engaged. However, there's just so much YouTube bullshit that. Yeah. That that is the thing I want to counteract, really, to, like, make it because YouTube's so accessible mm-hmm. that people can get into the obviously people just get into these conspiracy theory rabbit holes and other bullshit, and there needs what to be mean? something to buffer that. The 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 FBI and the CIA absolutely killed John F. Kennedy. <laughs> anyway, no, sorry. Joking, but not joking, but joking, but not joking. Anyway, for another podcast, another for another podcast. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's absolutely essential to avoid as well, because like it's a hundred percent like uh, possible to like have a political ideology, and the only way you engage with it is by watching YouTube videos. Or by like reading Reddit, or by um, following like people on TikTok. And while messaging is good, like just having like that diverse of messaging with, not to say that there is a right message, like. I don't know what the right message is. If I did, that'd be cool. Uh, but yeah, it's it's definitely possible to just get sidetracked in like functionally drama. Yeah. And and lose sight of the bigger picture just because like somebody didn't have the right take or somebody said this thing in this one way and they meant this, but you wanted them to say it in this other way or they didn't approach it from this particular whatever. Um, so yes, um, another organizational resistance uh, pattern um, that I would like to see like going forward is like as much as you can engage with politics on YouTube, on Instagram, on Reddit, on TikTok, like it tends to become like rabbit holes, like you were saying, where you you just go down into your politics, and so to to like properly like not properly, but to like guerrilla engage people in politics that they otherwise would not encounter. Um, I really like the idea um, of how the um, or communist literature was being spread in the 20s and early 30s, um, where it, like it was being hidden in trees. Oh yeah. Um, so like I I'm very much for the like print out a bunch of like communist leaflets or like pamphlets, um, and just like go and put them in places that like people physically engage with. And like 
maybe some people who pick them up will read them and yeah. in- encounter ideas that they otherwise wouldn't have that day. Yeah, I think the we need to um, direct fandom zines into, you know, communist zines, and we'll we'll get there. Yes, um, fully automated luxury sonic communism. Yes, we just gotta make all the fandom zines um, turn into uh, mesh in. Uh, Marxism and we'll solve this fucking problem in like a week. Super who Lockean Marxian communism. Perfect. There we go. Do not take this idea. If you do, you owe us like ten dollars. Uh, donate ten dollars to uh, the charity of your choice. Yes. Yes. If you take the idea, go. For it. <laughs> if you don't, do it anyway. So I guess our um, takeaway from this is we need to have more of a youth sector type thing, and we should be able to distribute literature that is accessible and free. Yes. Um, and on that, though, like in, in conjunction, so if there were like the communist scouts, um, you could have like, a communist, not to be like the communist scouts are going to be on their phones all the time, but you could have a Communist Scouts, like, organizational app. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts have their own app where they can, like, national, can get, like, messaging app to Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts chapters. And, like, that would be a great avenue to, like, engage the uh, youths with, um, like, on the ground organizing, but also survival tactics, and also like political theory, political ideology, but then also have a means of like organizing and directing mass protest. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. Yeah, because then it like if you have a chapter in every city, like. And you you can immediately like be like okay because of this event eh, this weekend uh, we need volunteers from each chapter to go and organize as part of this particular protest and spread literature and spread like pamphleting so that we can get more people involved and just be able to do that on the drop of a hat as like issues arise like that is that's a big part of like properly building a movement yeah um hmm this is something to think of this is something to think of and we're definitely going to need the communist scouts in the coming eco-fascist water wars <laughs> yeah we're gonna uh i think um there's a balance of you know, not being like, hey, uh, kids of the future, you guys figure it out. And, you know, like, we'll figure it out later. You guys can do it. You guys are you guys are doing good, baby. Just just we'll just leave you to it mm-hmm. and um, be like, yeah, you kids are really fucking dumb. So, like, when you get older, you'll figure it out and yeah. know that you're wrong. You know, yeah. so <laughs> I feel like giving like 
younger folks agency to be able to either channel their youthnessness and just kind of like that shit into something mm-hmm. positive and to like have them learn stuff is good instead of them kind of wallowing of like hey i have these like i'm now understanding the contradictions of capitalism and then they go i do yeah and then they're then they're like oh um time for me to go down carlos swindon fucking youtube rabbit hole because he sounds just enough to to do the thing and then like oh there's a bunch of racism here you know yeah or or finding some like like eco-fascists yeah yeah eco-fascists uh, fucking. Okay, so ideas for what to do when we're done with the podcast is start the communist scouts. Um, not done this episode, but done in general. Which okay. Never happening. Never happening. Podcast <laughs> will live forever. Um, so we will create AIs that will read books. Still wait a month, even though the AI probably can read the book in like I don't know ten minutes. And then have the discussion about it till forever. Yes. In our voices. In our voices, yeah. Perfect. Yes. Um, So then 7.3. Engaging in international politics at the local level. Founded pre-World War II and during World War II, international communist positions help or hinder local organizing. Um. Because this book talks about um, how the, and I think we already mentioned the the Nazi USSR Pact. Yeah. And how that impacted um, the the position of local organizing. Um, And it really shouldn't have, like, as much as, like, as a communist, like, support communists, like, for, for what needs to be done on the ground, like, it, 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 don't take a stance in public. Like, don't do it. It's unnecessary. You're not there. You're not going to make the U.S., like, support Russia or, or stay out of fighting on Finland's behalf because capital got a capital. Yeah, and it, like, let's see, they didn't find about find out about the internment camps until when in the war? Like, 44? Okay. So, like... Yeah. For the, the public, for certain, the internment camps were very... Um, yeah, so, like, um, this, I feel like this book didn't do a good job of kind of conveying that because by the time that the United States got into the war it wasn't like black Americans were like yes let's we're fighting against racism across the ocean and it framed it that way in that book and I don't think that really was the case I could mm-hmm. be wrong yeah that that I don't know that that was the messaging that most of the US was seeing um, it was probably more of like a lot of propaganda regarding like stopping the the spread of uh, of like 
German aggression. Right. And like trying to defend our allies like Britain and France and then reluctantly the USSR. Um, I will say this though. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll kind of backtrack a little bit. So, um, you know, there was a Spanish civil war. People knew they, some folks did fight in that. So they knew what the fuck fascism was. Um, so there was that. And then once Hitler came into power, a lot of people were like over here, you know, a lot of communists were like, Hey, by the way, that like, this is not good. Like this is like, we're probably going to go to war soon. And fascism is a problem. We need to like be anti-fascist. Right. Yes. And then once that pact came in, it was kind of very difficult to kind of like, um, be like, yeah, we're anti-fascist, but our U.S. like our technically our communist ally, like personal ally, whatever, mm-hmm. is okay with the Nazis, even though like I know that they're not great. Um, mm-hmm. you know that yeah. probably that made it difficult, right? Yeah. So, um, I think. For, I think for folks who were probably part of the Communist Party, like who were in, like in it, they believed it. They were probably, I would say, probably like kind of disillusioned a little bit because of that pact. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that really affected folks who just didn't really care about international politics. They were just really more into the, like, let's help with equality and like maybe try to get like a better wage and like labor stuff. Um... And until the actual war happened, then it kind of released the yolk of like, okay, we are once again anti-fascist, like for reals now and not quietly, let's go all in and, you know, kill the Nazis and stuff like that. Yeah. Something, something else, and it may be good to read a book about this, is I, I vaguely remembered from history class that there was a um, Nazi USSR anti-aggression pact prior to World War II, but I didn't have a good understanding that like that was because the USSR wanted to invade Finland, and I didn't realize like that happened, and I want to know why, because I feel like probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Probably. Like, as much as like I support like all of the world becoming communist. Um like I don't know that I support say large countries invading smaller countries to try and make them communist cuz like that's the shit the capitalists do but then also like part of me is like well if you have power you need to wield power but like i don't i don't know anything about the situation to know that like was the right call to make or if i should think it was the wrong call to make and should condemn yeah i just don't know yeah um i thought was interesting too was 
the like, well, we're going to be anti-war after this pact came out and anti-imperialism. And then USSR did it in imperialism. Mm -hmm. And so it's just kind of like, I can, that must have been very difficult to kind of rationalize and reason about. And I think kind of what the lesson learned here is that, unfortunately, we're going to have to contend with, you know, the past. Like that is something that, you know, we'll, we will need to have like good answers for and probably have to be kind of okay with people not really thinking that's a good answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But yeah, there's probably a book about it. See if I can find something about it. We'll throw it on the list. Yeah. Maybe, maybe for December. Yeah. Uh, someday. Um, I think that about sums it up. Yeah. Um, if, if you're at this point in the podcast and you're still not sure what this book was about, um, it, it was real hard to be a communist and black in the South from pretty much always. Yeah. Um, right. So for the next uh, actually four months, we're going to be reading uh, Zek. Um, oh, my God. Uh, don't say it that way. Okay. In the next one third of the year. Yeah. Fuck. Is this like where you people get mad when you say Curacao instead of Curacao? Are you going to get mad at me about not saying Zhuk or whatever? Zhuk. Yeah. Zhuk. Less than nothing, thousand pages. We're being smart this time and not trying to read a thousand pages in a month. Yeah, this is called growth. Growing, we learned. We, we learn. We, uh, we met our material conditions and we adjusted our behavior to there you more go. properly address the conditions on the ground. There you go. So. For this month of January, we read up to chapter five. Um, that's through to interlude one. Yes. And then February, we read the rest of uh, part two. March is part three. And then April is part four. Uh, the part four is a little bit shorter. So we'll probably have kind of a summing up and a reexamination of kind of what we discussed. Um, this will be fun for me because I haven't read a philosophy book or anything that's like of that nature ever. So I'm going to cry. Yeah, I don't think you're going to cry. Um, okay. Have you ever seen anything of Zizek's before? Um, only when he debated Jordan Peterson. I only saw clips of that because I didn't want to sit through that ever. Sure. Um, he's a pretty good speaker. He's a pretty good writer. Um, he's... He's good at, like, not just, like, engaging in dry philosophy. He he does a pretty decent job of, like, bringing it more to a public level. And more to, not at a public level. Like, in, in, in the preface, he spends a while, like, breaking down the difference between 
an idiot, an imbecile, and a moron, and the root of the word imbecile, and how it comes from the um, an, a Latin word. Do, 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 do. Uh, where is it? Okay. Um, imbecile is a term for moderate, severe, uh, oof, uh, mental retardation, uh, as well as for a type of criminal. This is a quote from, from Wikipedia. It's not his words. It arises from the Latin word imbecilis, meaning weak or weak-minded. Imbecile was once applied to people with an IQ of 26 to 50, with moron being 51 to 70, and idiot 0 to 25. Um, bacille, uh, where does the root bacille proceed, uh, preceded by the negation im come from? Although the origins are murky, it is probably derived from the Latin baculum, stick, walking stick, or staff. So an imbecile is someone walking around without the help of a stick. One can bring some clarity and logic into the issue if one conceives of the stick on which we all, as speaking beings, have to lean as language, the symbolic order, that is, what Lacan calls the big other. In this case, the tripartite idiot, imbecile, moron makes sense. The idiot is simply alone, outside the big other. The moron is within it, dwelling in language in a stupid way, while the imbecile is between the two, aware of the need for the big other, but not relying on it, distrusting it, something like the way the Slovene punk group Leibach defines their relationship towards God in referring to the words on the dollar bill in God we trust. Like Americans, we believe in God, but unlike Americans, we don't trust him. Interesting. So it's it's going to be like that. Gotcha. Um, but for a thousand pages. Love it. <laughs> um, it, like uh, two paragraphs further down in the preface, he starts talking about Mao for a bit, uh, because Mao at one point refers to himself as a hairless monk with an umbrella, um, and let me just bring that back up. Um, Mao Zedong characterized himself as a hairless monk with an umbrella. Holding an umbrella hints at the separation from heaven, and in Chinese, the character for hair also designates law in heaven. So that what Mao is saying is that in Lacanese, um, he is subtracted from the dimension of the big other, the heavenly order which regulates the normal run of things. What makes the self-designation paradoxical is that Mao still designates himself as a monk. A monk is usually perceived as someone who, precisely, dedicates his life to heaven. So how can one be a monk subtracted from heaven? This imbecility is the core of the subjective position of a radical revolutionary and of the analyst. This book is going to be super fun to me because I'm going to have to reread shit probably a couple times. Yeah. It'll be great. Yeah. It may... <laughs> it, it may uh, I may send you a couple like podcast episodes about Hegel okay. and Hegelian dialectics to give you some context for just dialectics in general. That will probably have them. Yeah, that will probably be helpful. And I will make sure to link them as part of our show notes. Um, okay. you know, just if folks want to kind of have a little bit of background. Because like I was planning to like probably Wikipedia a bunch of stuff in here so that I can mm -hmm. maybe 
grasp it a little bit more. Sure. Um, I mean, it's, this is going to be a, a big learn for me, too. Um, I, I have baby's first steps into dialectics, I feel like. Um, but what I, what I can say is that it's not thesis, antithesis, synthesis. It is not that. Okay. Good. That is a mischaracterization. <laughs> it is more like the circle and the outside of the circle. Okay. Neither can exist without the other. And changes to the circle change the outside of the circle. So if you shrink the circle, the outside grows bigger. If you change the circle into uh, a misshapen blob, the outside becomes misshapen. Uh, but the two reflect and impact each other in a reciprocal manner. Cool. So that, that is more um, the concept of like an object and its negation, which is where like the whole concept of like negation, this must be an antithesis. And so then like the synthesis, it, it must be a combination of the two and moving to a new thing. But it's like, no, like there, there's, there's the thing and then the negation of the thing. And then they are both themselves and together at the same time. And while there isn't a new thing, they're just the two things that are the one thing. Or the multitude of things, if you say, apply it to um, evolutionary biology. Like, evolutionary biology is dialectical. Interesting. Well, uh, we're going to probably go, or we're definitely going to go way more into this for the next four months. It's going to be great. Uh, we'll figure out the book after that. It'll probably be something fun maybe our one yeah. fiction book of the the year yeah and remember books, books are, are good. good actually actually <laughs>